Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we are going through the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation, so glad for everyone joining us today. Hopefully you're having fun at home, maybe sledding, building some snowmen, something, right? If you've got 18 inches of snow, like we're supposed to get here in Oklahoma City. But today we are in the letter to Thyatira, it's Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And we're going to open up and just read the letter first, and then we'll unpack it kind of verse by verse here. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works in charity and service and faith, in thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent, of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so that actually, that closes out the uh, chapter 2 in Revelation in the letter to Thyatira. So we're in the fourth of the seven letters. And we've been going along this Roman, this old Roman mail route. We started with Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamos, and now we're in Thyatira at the end of chapter 2. And if, just as a reminder, we've got four levels of application for the letter. It's a, a local application to a real church, really in that day. There's an application to all of the churches in that day, all seven of them. There's an application to all churches throughout history as well, a personal application, and then a prophetic profile, a 
prophetic profile of all churches in history in advance. And each of the letters has these same seven elements, the name of Jesus, a, something they were doing great, something the church needed to work on, something Jesus was encouraging them of, then a promise to the overcomer, uh, the closing phrase, he that hath an ear, and then the name of the church actually has a meaning into that letter. And so these seven elements. And Thyatira was a, it was a colony of the ancient Macedonian Greeks, and it was situated between Sardis and Pergamos. And it's set on the river Lycus in ancient times. And the people there made their living through trafficking of dyeing in purple, so dyeing purple garments. Uh, the name Thyatira actually was came from a Roman, a Roman uh, leader named Nicator back in 301 BC. The city Thyatira, he named it after that because his daughter was born to him at that time. He had already had a daughter, and so it was named. He named it Thyatira, which literally means daughter, or it also means an odor of affliction. But before it being named Thyatira, it was named Semiramis, which uh, I think is a lot more telling to the spiritual condition of this city that we're going to break down today. So Semiramis. Uh, that name likely carries a lot more weight to the purpose of this letter. And so when you look back in ancient times, pagan religions believed that Nimrod and Semiramis had a son named Tammuz. And they associated him, Tammuz, with this false worship of the sun god. And their false belief was that he died at the winter solstice around the third week in December and then was resurrected as the days got longer. And so you have this, this whole concept of the death of the sun god, this false sun god. And then as the days got longer from that point on, they worshiped the resurrection of this false sun god. And so this is celebrated in their tradition. They would burn a Yule log and they would replace it with a trimmed and decorated tree the next morning. And this is straight out of Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 5. And you can go there and read about this pagan, heathen practice that they, they did. It was rooted all the way back in Babylon with a trimmed and decorated tree that they would put up to worship the sun god, this false god in that day. And obviously it's a false, it's a false story very similar to what we have in Jesus, the true story. Of one that was born, raised, died for us, and then was resurrected on the third day. The true Son of God. And so on, the, on starting in verse 18 of the letter. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. And it's so interesting that this city has a connection back to that ancient Babylonian tradition of Tammuz and the false sun god worship and Jesus using the title of himself I am the true son of God this true son of God not the false son of God so the name son of God in reference to Jesus it only shows up one other time in the entire Old Testament and I find this fascinating because it's in Daniel 325 in the entire scene with the fiery furnace. 
And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And this is straight out of, out of Daniel's day. If you remember, he's gone. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire by Nebuchadnezzar for not bowing down to the statue. And in the midst of the fire, there is one like the Son of God. And as we know, that's Jesus himself. He met them in the fire. Only their, their restraints were burnt off and not a piece of their clothing nor their hair. And I just think it's fascinating that that title only shows up one time in the entire Old Testament, and it has to do with fire. And who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire? And Jesus, Jesus shows up in that moment. And you kind of stop and think, how did they know what the Son of God looks like? You know, how did they recognize Jesus at that moment as the Son of God? And so I find this always fascinating because when evil comes face to face with Jesus and when he walks into the room, there is no doubt that it is the son of God. You know him. You know when he steps into your life. You know when he steps into that middle of that situation. Even the demons know him and tremble at his name. And so the son of God is unmistakable. Okay, then we get to the commendation in verse 19. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So Jesus knows their patience locally that this church was enduring. Okay, the, the Jezebel spirit was raising up. And we're going to look at that in a lot of detail here in a minute. But prophetically speaking, this church represents the medieval church. The medieval times that lasted the better part of a thousand years from 500 to 1500 8 BC or AD, I'm sorry, roughly. So they had a lot of patience, especially during this time historically known as the Inquisition that was going on in those days. And Jesus knows their patience. And the first, the last being better than the first. Now, why would he say that? Well, because of all the many centuries of horrible oppression during the medieval times, this church endured and out of it came the Reformation, which was a huge moment in church history. And so their works, the last being greater than the first. And so after the church married the world, we looked at that back in Pergamos last week. It allowed this Jezebel spirit to rise up and out of that came this church rebellion known as the Reformation. The Reformation. And we'll review that next week in the Church of Sardis. Okay, so then we get to the concern in verses 20 through 22. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Here's the first hint in the first three chapters of the book. The first time the great tribulation, that word is even used. And notice the connection. 
if they don't get saved and, and repent and turn from their deeds, then they will be cast into it, which means there has to be a way for them to be kept out of it, which is to be kept in Jesus. And right now, a lot of people in this city are rejecting him and not accepting the free gift of salvation. So to learn about what Jesus is speaking about here, who was Jezebel? And I, you probably would be hard-pressed today to find somebody with that name, right? Because it carries such a negative connotation. You don't find many girls running around the name Jezebel. So why would these actions be suffered amongst the church? You know, why is that? Why, would, why is Jesus using a specific example of Jezebel? There likely was a Jezebel really in that church at that time, but... He's hearkening back to something historically that's a reference that all of them should know from the Old Testament. So when you go to the Old Testament, she was the daughter of Eth Baal. And Baal is obviously the worship of that satanic false god, Baal, or Balaam is plural, Baal being singular. Balaam would be a collection of all those false gods in the Old Testament. He was the king of Sidon. He was a priest of Astarte. That, that false goddess worship that was rooted back in Babylon. She murdered the predecessor to seize the throne, for somebody else to seize the throne. Uh, she ended up marrying King Ahab from Israel in the Old Testament to try to make a trade alliance between Israel and Phoenicia at that time, a very profitable alliance they saw as Israel was continuing its degradation and compromise, and finally the king marries this wicked woman named Jezebel. So she wanted to kill all the true prophets of God, and that's straight out of 1 Kings 18. And false worship of Baal and Astarte originated in Babylon. We talked about this some um, a couple weeks ago. But Jezebel and Ahab brought about the worst time, one of the worst time, in the entire Old Testament. In the pagan worship of Ashtaroth, they set up high places and groves that God wanted them to tear down continuously. He constantly said, tear down the high places. And over and over and over, the children of Israel didn't get it all the way done. So they merged the Babylonian idea of the queen of heaven into Israel, into God's chosen people. And those false pagan ideas were to be rooted out and destroyed among God's prophets. So in 1 Kings 18, you get to this challenge where Elijah challenges the false prophets of Ahab and Jezebel. And I, and I want to read, we're going to read some sections out of the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Kings, and I want you to recognize a few things that, number one, how many of these false prophets there were, how they were welcome at the king's table, and Notice how Ahab and Jezebel ushered them in, they promoted them, they aided them, and they exalted these false prophets of these pagan gods. So we're going to start off with 1 Kings 18, uh, verses 17 through 41 here. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Balaam, this is that plural false god. 
Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel into Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. And so they were welcomed in the king's palace. Ahab and Jezebel had welcomed all of these false prophets and were feeding them, taking care of them, giving them sustenance. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. So Elijah's going to put the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Jezebel to a test. He's going to say, okay, if your God's the real God, we're going to do this test, and we're going to see whose God wins this contest. Okay, so they're going to put this, cut this bullock into pieces, lay it on wood, and put no fire under and I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. And call ye on the name of, the, of your gods. There's that plural gods again. And I will call on the name of the Lord, the Lord, and the God that answereth by fire. Let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of all, choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first. For ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning, even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leapt upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. Elijah's a, a very sarcastic sense of humor. I just love it. I love his sarcasm. And said, Cry loud. For he is a God, either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or pre-adventure he sleeps, and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves. That's all these pagan worshipers always, they cut themselves and do these markings and to try to get attention from their gods. Never works. After their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. So what Elijah's doing here is he's dumping water on the, the sacrifice that he chose and to try to make it even more difficult for fire to catch. He's burning the, the fuel, the wood. He's, he's dousing it with water. He, he dug a moat around it, filled it with water. He's doused the sacrifice with water. And meanwhile, the whole time, he's mocking these other guys because they're getting no response 
from their supposed God. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it the third time. And he did it the third time. And the water ran about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Notice also Elijah says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. If you'll notice throughout the Bible, too, a lot of times God uses the name Jacob when, he's, when Jacob or Israel is doing something in the flesh. And he'll use the name Israel when something mighty is about to happen that only the Lord could do. And so Elijah's using that name, Israel, the Holy Spirit speaking through him, Israel. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink for there is a sound of abundance of rain. And so Elijah obviously wins the contest. Um, he goes out and, and doesn't just condone or, or rebuke what these prophets of all are doing. He roots out the problem. He takes the problem and gets rid of it. He kills all of these false prophets that are worshiping these false gods that are leading the nation of Israel astray. And he, he uproots that problem and gets rid of it. And that's going to be one of the deep applications of this letter to us is that anything in our church, in our lives, anything that we need to get rid of, we need to uproot and get rid of. So when you go on further in 1 Kings in 21, you'll read the story of Naboth's vineyard. And Jezebel and Ahab were married. Ahab was worshiping and really he was lusting after or... Um, looking after this piece of property, this little vineyard this guy named Naboth had. And Naboth won't sell it to him. And so Naboth is going on and about his life. He wants the property. He has sons that will be heir to this vineyard at some point, And he won't sell it to Ahab. And so Jezebel sets up, of sorts, an inquisition to get, to get Naboth and his vineyard Basically, Naboth, will, he'll go about and he'll commit a crime, an illegal crime. There'll be false witnesses. They will murder Naboth and all of his sons and get the vineyard into the property, the estate of the, of the king. And so she arranges this inquisition type. She brings his false witnesses, false condemnation, and ultimately executes Naboth. And as a result, the false religious state of, that Ahab is king of seizes the property of this vineyard. And so Jezebel, it doesn't say this in 1 Kings. You've got to go to 2 Kings to learn this. It's in 2 Kings 9, 25 through 26. But Jezebel not only kills Naboth, but she makes sure to kill all of the heirs to the estate, all of the sons. She wipes them out so nobody can stand up to lay claim to that piece of property. So Jezebel ultimately gets what the Lord prophesied about her through Elijah, and that's in 2 Kings 
uh, verses, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. This is interesting. So, and when Yehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face and tired her head and looked out a window. So she's trying to disguise herself at this point. She realizes the gig's probably up. She's trying to look like a destitute widow that the king will have mercy on, but it doesn't work because the Lord told her she would die because of her wickedness. And as Yehu entered in at the gate, he said, had Zimri peace who slew his master? And he looked up his face to the window and said, who is on my side, who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses and he trod her underfoot. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, go see now this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they, they came again and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Elijah, the Tishbite saying in the portion of Jezreel, shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel so they shall not say this is Jezebel so she ultimately gets exactly what the Lord had prophesied about her that she would be destroyed she'd be eaten by the dogs and they would not even recognize her body and so God took care of the problem and uprooted it physically out of Israel he had to step in and take care of that. Okay, so when you go on in Revelation, next verse in 23, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. And so Jesus is rebuking that spirit of Jezebel out of this church. Get it out. I will not only kill her, I will kill her children and get them out of my church. Okay, and then you get to the exhortation from the Lord in verses 24 and 25. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as not have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold, hold fast till I come. So he's telling them, you have a reward. There's something here that you have already. You need to hold on to it fast until I come. Just continue to stay strong. Okay, and then the close of the letter, you've got the promise to the overcomer and the closing statement. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. Even as I received of my father, which this is so interesting, we'll see that in a second. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. So finishing strong and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. This is exactly what Jesus would have each of us do, right? Is to finish strong. Uh, David did not finish strong. Solomon did not finish strong. When you go through the Bible and look at all these amazing men of the Lord that really blew it towards the back end of their life. They just blew it in some manner. And it goes back to you shall walk and not faint. You shall run, you shall run and not faint. Walk and not grow weary. That order in Isaiah 
to walk with the Lord and not grow weary to the end of it all, to the end of the age, to stay strong in him. That's what he would have us all do. And this language of ruling with a rod of iron, it shows up throughout the Bible. Uh, one of my favorite places is in Psalms 2. When you read Psalms 2, if you break apart and you diagram who's speaking, it's actually a conversation between the Trinity, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at one point, this is the Lord speaking. He says, thou shalt, he's speaking to Jesus, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so this language is rooted all the way back in Psalms of ruling with a rod of iron and shattering the nations, the wicked, with that rod of iron, breaking them into pieces. And it shows up two more times towards the end of Revelation in chapter 12. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. You know, Jesus hasn't done that yet. He, is, he has not ruled all the nations with a rod of iron, but he will. And that's what we're going to be looking at throughout the rest of Revelation. After we get through these seven letters, Jesus will set up a kingdom rule starting in Revelation 19. It will be a millennium reign, a millennial reign for a thousand years where he will rule every nation on earth with a rod of iron. And that's what it speaks about right here in that chapter when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And so this whole concept of ruling with a rod of iron, you see that throughout the whole Bible. And Jesus is saying here to the church at Thyatira, stay strong to the end and I'll give you power over the nations so that you shall rule with a rod of iron. You know, we are to be, it's one of the greatest promises in the whole Bible. We are to be co-heirs with Jesus. So if Jesus is giving something, is given something by the Father, we are to be a co-heir with that. And when you're an overcomer and you stay strong to the end, he's given the ability to rule with the rod of iron. And so he passes that on to us as well. Okay, the term morning star at the end here. One of, the, one of the last closing phrases of this letter, and I will give him the morning star. Okay, that, that term morning star, it's only used one other place in the entire Bible. And, it's, and so Jesus is it, and he will give himself to the overcomer. And it's at the very end of the Bible, the last chapter, Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto, these, unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And so that's where you get the definition of what is the morning star. Because when you get to chapter 2, up to that point in the Bible, you have no clue what it is. It hasn't been used yet. But you get to the end and you realize, oh, Jesus is talking of himself. In Isaiah 14, 12, it declares Satan to be the son of the morning. So the son of the morning. Of the morning star you can think about it that way the sun of the morning meaning it's again a declaration that he is a created being and specifically created by Jesus the sun of the morning star and so notice that also this is the first letter with the closing phrase after the promise to the overcomer and so you really have that closing phrase that closes the letter the first three Ephesus Smyrna and Pergamos that closing phrase was embedded in the letter before the promise to the overcomer. And so it's, it's backwards now. 
And then the rest of these letters, it's going to hold true to that structure. And it's interesting that this is, like we mentioned earlier, this is the first place that Jesus talks about going into great tribulation. And so structurally, there's something changing here that Jesus wants us to pick up on. There's something special about this point forward that lasts into the end of the age. There's something special here. And so when you go through the applications, the personal application, remember Ephesus was neglecting priorities. They had forgotten their first love. Smyrna was withstanding satanic opposition. Pergamus was avoiding spiritual compromising. And Thyatira is to not let evil take root. And when you go down these churches, we're in order now. The Apostolic Church in Ephesus, it was that Acts 2 church that started from that time forward. Then you had the persecuted church. And then Satan couldn't get rid of the church through persecution, so he marries the church. They marry the world in Pergamos. And now after being married and suffering that woman Jezebel for a long enough time in Thyatira, that spirit of Jezebel has come up within that marriage, that insidiousness, that wickedness of Jezebel. So the application to all churches, Ephesus was prioritizing devotion, not just doctrine. Do not lose your first love. Smyrna was enduring persecution. Pergamos to purify your ambassadorship, to keep yourself rooted in Jesus, to keep yourself in the Lord. And Thyatira, to root out all pagan practices, get them out of your life, get them out of the church, get them out of the body of Christ. Literally cut them off the way Elijah did with the false prophets of Baal. Just get rid of it. Elijah did not mess around with that evil. He went to it straightforward with a very sharp two-edged sword that was the word of God, and he got rid of it. He didn't mess around. He didn't let it sit and take root further and let them, hopefully they'll convert or hopefully they'll get, they'll get right. He gave them a chance. They didn't, and he cut that evil out. So... How about Thyatira historically? You know, the city was the center for a lot of trade guilds. And in those days, trade guilds were under an ensign of some pagan deity. There was some pagan deity that each trade guild would worship that in the work they did, they thought that knowledge and that prospering came from this false god. And so Thyatira was known for its dyes, especially its purple dyes. They were a derivative from the matter root, which is indigenous to the area. And Lydia, if you remember Lydia from Acts 16, she was the sales rep from Thyatira and was a trader of purple dyed garments. And she actually was very prosperous in what she did. She was very wealthy, traded these purple dyed garments and represented Thyatira in that. When you go to Acts 16, 14, and a certain woman named Lydia a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us. And look, here's the hint. Whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of by Paul. So notice how God opened her heart so that she may be a part of those. He opened her heart so that she would hear the things spoken by Paul, which means she was resistant in some regard to them. So she likely was a part of that trade guild worshiping some pagan deity at that time. So historically, Jezebel's actions from 1st and 2nd Kings set the stage for the medieval church and the Inquisition. 
And this is probably one of the darkest times throughout entire church history. It lasted the better part of a thousand years, and it was insidious. It led to completely vast corruption within the church. The church set up these courts which would prosecute Christians. And so they would bring in a false accusation a lot of times. And they were, remember, the church was married to the world, and so the state and church were together in this. But what if they rendered a guilty verdict on someone in the church, which was married to the state, would seize those assets. So it's literally exactly what Jezebel and Ahab did to Naboth and his vineyard. So just think about the wicked incentive the church had in rendering a guilty verdict, in finding people guilty. You know, if they're bloodthirsty, if they're if they are wanting more of the world and more wealth and more assets and more property, then there was an easy way to get it. Find a lot of guilty people and make false accusations and render them a guilty verdict and you can grow the state and grow the church. And it's exactly what Jezebel did in First and Second Kings. And if you want to look into some history of the Inquisition, just, just go search it. It's one of the darkest times there were, there were millions and millions and millions of Christians burned at the stake during those years, very dark years across Europe. Okay, so the letter to Thyatira, that Jezebel spirit, you know, we as a church have got to root out any evil that would seek to just even get a foot in the door. We cannot let it take root. We've got to root it out with the sword, with the word of God, and purify a bride, an unashamed bride, for Jesus' return. And so if you do not know Jesus, and want to be a member of that future ruling kingdom that's going to rule with a rod of iron at some point over the nations, it's very simple. Romans 10, 9, and this is our verse every week for salvation, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's that simple. And once you get saved, once you have the indwelling Holy Spirit in you, then you have the power to root out that evil, to root out that evil Jezebel spirit that may be in your life trying to root in pagan practices, that may be trying to root in false idolatry worship, to get you tied up in the world and more deeply rooted into it. Then you can have the power to overcome that, to repent and to turn away from it. You can have a seat with the true ruling king who will break the enemy at some point. That is what we have to look forward to in Jesus, is a ruling king. He's no longer going to show up as a suffering servant to wash the feet of people and to be, to be smacked around on the cheek and to be spat upon and to be crucified. He's showing up to rule the nations from the, from the capital of the world, which will be Jerusalem at that point. And so you can be a part of that ruling kingdom one day. The one who breathed life into you and knew you before the foundation of the world, he wants to welcome you into his kingdom forever. Forever. You have a seat waiting for you. You only need to submit to him to take possession of your true inheritance. And so if you want to learn more about that, you can email us at newcitychurch.love at gmail.com on some of the platforms you also see a link that you can click right now that you can request someone to talk with you about salvation if you need prayer requests 
anything. We are here to help and to pray alongside you. So thank you again, everyone. Hope you all have a great week. Stay warm, and we'll see you next time.